This is episode number 167 of the Rising Man podcast with Chief Philip Scott. All life depends on healthy relationships between men and women. What's up, Rising Man family? Shout out to you, everybody out there, man, women, brother, sister, everybody listening. Thank you so much for being here today. It is my great honor and highest joy to be here with you. My name is Jetty Azuma. I am the host of this podcast, and I have the pleasure of hosting this conversation today. Before we get into today's conversation, I want to remind all of you guys out there to go and get yourself signed up for our three-day wilderness immersion coming up April 16th to 18th. It's called Elements because we are reestablishing our relationship with the four sacred elements in conjunction with connecting as men out there scouring the landscape, doing it the way our ancestors used to do. So if this is something that you are interested in and called to, go to risingman.org slash elements and get yourself signed up today. All right, my guest for today is Chief Philip Scott. Chief Philip Scott has been on here three times now, and for those of you who are not familiar with him, he has walked the native path for over 30 years, learning from and sanctioned by traditional medicine and holy people, tribal spiritual leaders, shamans, and elders from several indigenous cultures. Annually sundancing in the Lakota tradition for over two decades, he is a ceremonial leader entrusted to share indigenous wisdom and traditional healing practices with the contemporary world. Interviewed both nationally and internationally on radio, television, and for newspapers, his life and experience have been featured in journals and books. In addition to directing and teaching the programs at the Institute in Northern California, which he founded in 1994, he maintains a private healing practice, performs ceremonies, lectures, conducts intensives, and leads pilgrimages worldwide. In this episode, we focused on healing the relations between men and women. We spoke about some of the historical issues that have led to ineffective and harmful relationships between men and women over the generations. Chief Philip Scott gave some insight into an indigenous perspective of right relationship between man and woman, and how man's relationship to woman begins with our relationship to our mother. We discussed why women are asked not to participate in certain ceremonies during their moon time or menstruation, and how mooning is a beautiful and powerful ceremony of its own and ought to be respected. Lastly, we discussed what the future of healed relationships between all men and women can create on this planet and the implications they will have on future generations. This and so much more. Without further ado, Chief Philip Scott. All right, family, I have a guest that hopefully by now many of you know, my dear friend, brother, relative, mentor, Chief Philip Scott, back again. I think this is our third time now. Three is a charm. Three is a charm. Wonderful. So for folks who don't know you, Chief, certainly they'll get to know you a little bit in the introduction, but would you just reintroduce yourself to anyone who's hearing you for the first time? Sure, absolutely. I'm known as Shunkawa Kansapa, which is Lakota for Black Horse, and I have mixed ancestry. And I'm a ceremonial chief in the Lakota tradition, as well as in the Native American church. And I've been walking this path for about 40 years now, and I've been sun dancing for the past three decades. And I've been in the church for close to 25 years as well. That's a brief Reader's Digest version of my 
qualifications. <laughs> yes, a very seasoned veteran and experienced man in these ways. And so I, I really trust your wisdom in traditional ways and as a representative of indigenous wisdom, because I've experienced you in the flesh so many times, you know, we're family. So I really trust you and value your perspectives and opinions. And the first circle that we did around here, we were talking about current events through an indigenous lens, through an indigenous perspective, interpreting and understanding this interesting pandemic time that we're in and what this different interpretations of that could look like. And then we've dropped into boyhood and masculinity and manhood and what it means to be a man through that same lens. And I'd like to talk today about the relationship between man and woman and masculine and feminine through the same lens, because to be in right relationship with one gender towards the other and one energy or essence towards the other within ourselves and with each other is a really important conversation for men to be having. So right off the bat, what does it mean to be in right relationship between a man and woman? For myself, we have to look at gender as medicine. There is a medicine of masculine and that there's a medicine of the feminine. There's also a medicine of those who regard themselves as a different kind of identity. And all of them have particular protocols and ceremonially speaking, as well as responsibilities. If we look at how life is generated on this planet, it really involves the union of masculine and the feminine together to bring life into the world. For that to really take place, there has to be reverence and respect for one another, that we acknowledge the medicine of the masculine and we acknowledge the medicine of the feminine. And there's going to be differences because of the roles that they may embody in particular kind of traditional societies, right? You know, the current iteration of the Western colonial world, which is based on patriarchy, is a suppression of the feminine. It's a dishonoring and a disrespect of women and the medicine that they carry. And we also see this expressed in our relationship to the earth. There is a ravaging of the earth, a denigration of our mother. And so, part of the directive, if you will, for the masculine, for the male energy, actually has to do with being a shield to protect women, to protect children, to protect elders, to protect the earth, right? And that's, for me, the embodiment of awakened warriorship. So, if we are disrespecting, say, for example, our biological mother, so everything in this earthly plane of awareness comes through the feminine principle. We're upon the mother earth, which is a generative uh, being, and she brings life from her body. And then by extension, there's very few beings, animals in this world that it comes through the masculine principle of birth. So everything is birthed through the feminine. And I think as men, as human beings, we need to acknowledge, regardless of whether it be male or female or another identity, to acknowledge our biological mothers as the beings who have carried us, in this case for nine months, and have brought us into the world. And so, that already means that there's a reverence and a respect for our biological mothers, as well as for our mother, the earth. If we are not respecting our biological mother and appreciating what she has done and endured to bring us into the world, 
if we are disrespecting our earth, then we are disrespecting the feminine. That struck a really big chord with me I wasn't expecting. I'm going to share a little bit of a story just to give some context. So my mother has had a pretty tough life. She was in a previous marriage before she met my father, had my older brother who's 10 years older than me, and then subsequently divorced very soon after he was born. And, you know, was a single parent for a long time. And then she met my dad, got married, had me and my younger brother, had breast cancer when I was nine years old. And pretty much from that point has been perpetual state of poor health. She's had different various issues. Thankfully, she's still here and she still has her mental faculties, but physically she's really suffered a lot. Mentally, she's also suffered a lot too. And it was so hard for me as a kid to see my mom hurt. And there wasn't a lot of teaching or mentorship around that. There wasn't what I needed just to understand better was just empathy and compassion. But because of the depth that I was witnessing my mom hurt, the only way I could survive it as a child was to distance myself from it, to resent it, to be angry with her for her pain. I didn't know what else to do with it. And this really lingered until I was in my mid-20s. I really resented my mom. And this is hard to say, but I remember having thoughts that it might be better if my mom just died so that she didn't have to suffer anymore and so that the rest of us wouldn't have to hold her pain for her. And I still carry some shame in saying that because my mom I've come to learn so much and appreciate her for all the things that she did, especially as a parent now, witnessing my wife be a mom. Mm-hmm. I have so much more respect. I feel so ashamed when I look back and think, I can't believe I ever had those thoughts about my mom. But it's real. It awakens in me this sadness that that's what I learned about how to support and protect the feminine. That's just all I had available to me. Obviously, I've grown tremendously from that and I found a different framework and context in which to be a protector. But I still know that there's a part of me that doesn't know how to fully hold the pain of a woman. And I know because in my relationship with Carrie, when she's in pain or she's hurting, there's this overly masculine response to it that where I basically expect her to handle her pain the way I handle mine, which is like, okay, we can acknowledge it, but let's keep going. And she just really wants to be seen and held in that. Absolutely. I just wanted to share that because I'm sure that I'm not the only one. And I think that that's a pretty accurate representation of what many of us have received as a legacy of showing up for the feminine. Absolutely. And I think it's important. And and thank you for sharing that story and that tenderness. I think at the heart of the matter, it's important for you to have forgiveness and compassion for yourself. Because oftentimes, particularly as children, they don't have the skill sets to be able to know how to be present for another person's pain. And because the child, naturally, the child is, you know, is self-absorbed, right? And wants the love and the attention of the parents. And so, I think it's important for you to hold that as well for yourself, that there's some compassion and forgiveness and, and acknowledging your innocence, right? And that, in fact, there was strategy for your survival emotionally, And that's why you created that story or that narrative to protect yourself. Eventually, this goes for basically all children create strategies for survival. And as we mature and evolve, then the point is for us to examine these strategies and see which ones really no longer serve us and to be able to release them and let them go. Now, you mentioned something that I think is also really important because There is a very unhealthy paradigm in the Western world about the man being the rescuer, this knight in shining armor, proverbially, which also implies that the damsel's in distress, 
which therefore creates a paradigm of the perception of the feminine as weak and requiring our virility and strengths to come in to save the day. That's really not a healthy dynamic. It's also one that will ultimately backfire because eventually a woman will assert her own sovereignty and therefore no longer is in need of the man in that rescuer kind of mode. So again, it's about dismantling that perception so that it is a much more egalitarian way of relationship that we honor the strengths and the weakness of both genders. There's also this compartmentalization and dichotomization that this gender is this and this gender is that, soft and yielding is a feminine and the men are strong. And it's, for me, a false perception because we're human beings. And as human beings, we're going to experience the gamut of emotions and characters. And so it's not about pigeonholing a gender in terms of these qualities. Therefore, we also understand that you cannot hold your wife's pain any more than she can hold yours, but rather we witness and we support and we listen. And that actually is the quality of also being a healer. People will often say to me, you know, thank you for holding space. It's like, no, I'm not holding space. I'm occupying space with you. And I'm supporting and listening and witnessing your pain and your transformation as we move through this healing journey together. So as a medicine person, my intent is to invoke the ancestors. They are the ones that create the container and hold that space for the transformation of the human being. Let's open up that for a second, because I think there's a lot of these more Western colonial thematics that play out here when you talk about rescuing and healing, you know, modern medicine, the war on everything, right? We're we're always at war. (laughs) Instead of being in relationship, we're in conflict. And then we praise it. We celebrate victories over the coronavirus and over cancer versus this other perspective, which I know you talked about in our first conversation, how the virus is also a medicine and how it's teaching us through that lens of what do we have to learn here? I really like this idea of regardless of gender, regardless of man, woman, the way that we can show up for each other in our individual journeys of growth and healing and transformation as bearing witness and listening Because beneath that, what I've come to appreciate, even in my own work, is that I'm just being here, witnessing somebody learn how to take care of themselves and offering perspective. I usually use the metaphor of a mirror because a mirror is like neutral. It's objective. There's no emotion or ego that I'm layering onto how I'm supporting you. I'm merely just an object that's here giving you another way of viewing and experiencing yourself and your life. Mm-hmm. At best, that's what we can all do for each other. But there's this other mentality that there's a greater responsibility than just that, that I can't just be a mirror. I also have to be the one intervening. I have to puppeteer you and move your parts in order for you to heal. That kind of gives that ego boost too. I often say that A mentor is not a screen for your projections, but a mirror for your reflections. But part of the penchant for rescuing has to do with our own sense of discomfort. So the question is, are you able to stand in the fire, to feel these flames, this intensity, the same as with conflict? Are we able to be able to sit in discomfort? without having to change it, without having to ameliorate it immediately. 
because sometimes there's the heat of the fire of a conflict or the tension of some kind of pain and suffering. Oftentimes, the penchant for rescuing has to do with the rescuer feeling uncomfortable about somebody else's suffering or pain. Mm. And so, they try to fix it because they are uncomfortable versus understanding that pain is the teacher for that individual and that we can endeavor to mitigate suffering, but we can't necessarily take that pain away because that pain is the mentor and the teacher for that individual. Well, I think that that's part of what, and I'd be interested to get your opinion on this, but I'll say mine first on the mothering role that is available in just in community and cultures in general. Because I think of, you know, a mom is there to kiss the boo-boos, right? For the children to make them feel better, but it's not to take their pain away for them. I think that mothering at its finest is over the course of a child's young lifetime, preparing them to hold their own pain, but meeting them where they're not yet willing or able to go. So like a kid falls and bangs their head and they're scared. The mother can bridge the gap. I think of it visually where a child can only go so far in their own recovery from that event. And then the mother can meet them halfway and then kind of help them along. And -hmm. over the course of them growing to be a teenager and an adolescent and a young adult that ideally they're able to do that themselves. And even in ceremony, when somebody's getting well, they're processing something. I've seen people, especially new folks, the inclination is to put a hand on their back and kind of rub their back or do something that's very nurturing, very maternal. Mm-hmm. But I know there's also this, well, let them be in that because they're okay here. We're still here. We're not abandoning them because we're not putting our hand on their back. In fact, we're helping them learn to take care of themselves, not in isolation, but in community. It's a different idea for a lot of people. I think it's also being comfortable with the notion of being powerless. Yes, you know, that child falls and is crying and screaming and the mother is going to rush to that child and cradle that child and rock that child. But I don't think that's just exclusively women. I think that's men as well. I think there's a tendency for us to actually mother and be fatherly. I mean, there's certainly women that may be listening to this call who are single parents of sons. And so they're going to assume some of that masculine role energetically as best as they can. I'm reminded of the medicine woman who, it was the first time that I shared the story of beloved wife's passing. And there were tears streaming down my face, and I'm sharing the story from beginning to end. And this medicine woman is completely riveted and deeply listening and actually mirroring my tears. She's weeping with me. And I finished the first recitation of the story in a public context. And she looked at me and she said, thank you for sharing your story. There's literally nothing I can do for you other than to let you know that you are held and that you will not be the same man in 13 moons, that grief is your journey and grief is your teacher. And she did Olympia cleansing on me due to all the other matters related to issues around the past of a beloved. But the actual journey of grief myself, that's a subjective personal odyssey. And that's where we, therefore, as people who are seeing those who are grieving, for example, and I've done a lot of hospice work as well, um, and that there literally is nothing that we can do other than to be fully present, to listen to their stories, and to, shall we say, place that energetic embrace around them. 
to let them know that they can be nurtured and held and cry, to allow them that purification and that transformation, knowing that the journey is going to be a subjective one for them. It's really interesting, especially when we start talking about grief and the pain that's associated with that. There's literally no way that we can avoid it. And yet it's a very Western concept of trying to delay or avoid the pain of grief and death and dying. You know, I think about some of the ancient texts, the book of dying or something. The book of the dead and the book of living and dying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much legacy wisdom about death as an important component of life. And yet you look everywhere in our modern society and there's the delaying of the prolonging of trying to escape, right? They came to this country looking for the fountain of youth because they were afraid of dying and aging. And the way that that simple notion has woven itself into all of the generations since Europeans settled in the Americas here, I just see how much of an impact that's having, even just the way we live our lives, the simple choices and decisions that we make. And it's just about self-preservation, which takes us all the way back to the difference between a child and an adult or a boy and a man, Sure, is that preoccupation with Mm self-preservation. Yeah, there was such a deification of the youth in the West and a fear of growing older and becoming an elder. You know, speaking about that transition as well from boy into manhood and kind of tying it back in with gender, you know, I think we kind of mentioned this before the call that I think it's important that we understand that a man cannot initiate a girl into womanhood any more than a woman can initiate a boy into manhood. If you are a single parent with a child of the opposite gender, that it's important you assemble your allies of that child's gender to assist them in the initiation and the exploration of what that medicine of gender is about. And you know, the same is true to understand, going back also to indigenous cultures, which are more matristic and matrilineal. I prefer not to use the word matriarchy because archy implies a hierarchy. But matrilineal matristic, which are much more egalitarian, with many of these ceremonies, particularly like in the moontime ceremonies, for example, the protocols are mandated by the grandmothers, that it's not imposed by masculine agendas at all, but that there's an honoring of some of the unique medicine that women carry, which is to be life bringers and life carriers, literally, through their bodies. And so, there is a whole subset of ceremonies that only women can perform, particularly in this Plains Nations culture, right? So when white buffalo calf woman, who was a feminine entity and spirit who brought the sacred pipe to the people, she also imparted the seven rites. And two of these rites can only be accomplished by girls and women. And so there's definitely an honoring of the medicine that women carry. And so, if we look at matristic and matrilineal cultures, there's a wisdom that the women have in terms of how to be a woman, you know, and a man cannot share how a woman is to do her moon time ceremony because they don't have that reference point at all. I love and agree with what you said about a man can't initiate a girl and vice versa and the reasons why. I think that's really important to discuss. What would you say is the teaching or at least your perspective on folks who identify as other gendered for folks who are not familiar with the lingo? What is the protocol there? Actually, there are specific ceremonies that are for, shall we say, those who carry a womb or those who have a phallus. So if we prefer not to use the word two spirits, right, because it also implies a dichotomization and a polarization. 
But what we can say is, you know, those who identify as non-binary or those who carry a womb or those that have a phallus, then there's actually specific ceremonies for them in indigenous cultures that their medicine is also honored. You know, I think about, for example, in the Sundance, oftentimes they will have one who identifies as non-binary to clamber up the cottonwood tree and place some bundles up there, for example, because they do carry that kind of medicine. So in traditional cultures, particularly pre-contact, according to my families and my mentors, right, that you know, before the inculcation of Christianity into a lot of indigenous cultures and assimilation practices, there was definitely an honoring of the identity of all individuals and recognizing their intrinsic sovereignty to the identity that was often imparted to them through the spirits. Let's just say, for example, there is a woman who carried a womb who wanted to be a bison hunter. Well, she had a dream and a vision, and that was really what she asserted. Then she'd be permitted to go on a hunt, even though the culture, the tribe may understand that bison hunting was very dangerous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and warriors often did not return sometimes by being impaled by the bison or falling off their horse and being trampled, or, you know, for whatever the reason, right? And so they would understand that perhaps then that individual would not be bringing life through her body or his body, depending on how they saw that. Or similarly, if you had an individual that has a phallus, but who preferred to do more of the division of labor in terms of the feminine principles and practices, then they would be respected, right? In fact, there's a medicine way in the Lakota called Winte, an individual who recognizes or identifies as other than their gender. And there is actually a medicine person. Mm -hmm. So there is an honoring of those that were not necessarily binary in terms of their identification. So without me oversimplifying, if I'm hearing what you're saying is that in these ways, there were protocols for folks who identified as male or female, but that there was also for those who didn't or had a different vision for themselves in their life and their identity, there was not a tolerance, but a willingness of the people to support that vision in that dream versus mm -hmm. corner them or put them into a box. There's also an acceptance for who they perceive or desire themselves to be. And in fact, there is a ceremony that's done for transformation. There's actually a ceremony. There's an individual who wished to shift from one gender identity to another. And there's actually a ceremony. And of course, the ceremony involves the community. So the community also therefore celebrates and acknowledges this identification. Beautiful. Well, and let's teleport back to that bookmark that we had. You were beginning to speak about women in their moon time and the teaching that's come down from the grandmothers of the protocols, at least in this community. I've had this conversation with another guest recently, and we were talking before we started recording that there's this tradition of anti-feminism and misogyny that has created a lot of wounds, and rightfully so, because of the atrocities that have occurred towards women historically. But that there's still a reason or a context behind why there's these protocols in place, why women who are mooning, for example, are seen as already in ceremony and therefore asked not to attend or participate in other ceremonies while they're mooning. Would you just give a little bit of that wisdom and that teaching? Because I think it's important for that to be shared and for another layer to the conversation to be happening that's not black and white. Certainly. 
as you rightly pointed out, there is deep wounding of the feminine in the Western colonized world, particularly around the time of the first mooning, the first bleeding that a young girl experiences. And oftentimes in the West, there are no rites of passage that the ceremony of the acknowledgement of that shift and that transition from being a girl into a young woman is not acknowledged, you know, ceremonially. Therefore, the perception of the moon time is one that's rather pejorative. It's based on the negativity of the blood or something that involves shame and not to be spoken about. Whereas in indigenous cultures, I have still their moon ceremonies in place. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of the inculcation of a young girl becoming a young woman in terms of understanding the role and responsibility of being able to bring life through her body. Again, these ceremonies are drummed by grandmothers and are passed down traditionally for you know, generations. So we have individuals who are in the Western world who, say, participate in indigenous ceremony. And the grandmothers request that women that are in their bleeding time honor that ceremony. Right? Even if they don't necessarily understand ceremonial protocols, but just to honor the time of this where the transmission that comes from my Lakota mother and, you know, from my wife in the spirit world who train with my, with our Lakota mother, it's a time of dreaming. It's a time of creativity. It's a time of actual ceremony for those that still maintain these ceremonies. And so there's already a reverence and regard for what the medicine of the moon time is. So an individual, a woman who is in her moon time, who may come to a lodge or to these other ceremonies, purification lodge, I'm referring to, right? There's a request that they refrain from participating in the ceremony if they're in their moon time ceremony. And this often perceived as a patriarchal oppression and domination, which again is a false perception because these are directives that are mandated by the grandmothers out of respect for the woman being in her other ceremony, because the moon time, the energetics of it is that the blood is going to the earth, a time of profound anchoring and rootedness. In fact, in many of the ceremonies like the Sundance and Hamblecha or crying for a dream, there is actually an area that's designated for women who are bleeding called the moon lodge. And so sometimes as the ceremony is going on, and I think, for example, when we would often sacrifice a bison that we would feed the people with for the Sundance, or when we went to take the sacred tree of life and sacrifice it, sometimes women who were not even in their cycle would spontaneously begin bleeding as an anchoring of the ceremony. They would say, deep roots make tall branches. And so it's a way of grounding and allowing the ceremony to ascend more by having that woman fulfill her role as the rooted anchor of the ceremony that allows that energies to flow into the earth, the planting. And so there's a complementarity to these ceremonies, right? But for a woman who is bleeding to be participating in a purification lodge, well, the moon lodge is the most profound purification there is biologically possible. And in fact, Women who were bleeding in the moon lodge dreamt the purification lodge for those, particularly men, who don't have a biological purification. Because the energies of the Sundance and Hamblecha and the fire, the flames rise up, the steam and the smoke rise up from these ceremonies. 
whereas the energies of the moon time are going deeply embedding into the earth. So the perception energetically is that they are oppositional, and yet there's still a relationship to them. However, it's important there's that respect of the boundary of ceremonial energy. And it's not because a woman is eclipsing the power of a man. You hear that again in some of these circles, right? So, a woman is more powerful than a man in that time and therefore is eclipsing their power and so they're afraid. And again, that's a paradigm of patriarchy and that perception that isn't necessarily true. And so, for me, it's purely based on respect and energetics, right? So, interestingly enough, when I was a younger man, I would try to experiment with some of these traditional teachings, right? Because it is indigenous science. And so I remember I was placing five people on the hill on a traditional hamblecha in Europe, and I had two teepees. And I had one teepee with my altar for the hamblecha. And in fact, I came back from placing the people on the hill and was reported that a large percentage of the women went into their moon time. And so, the other teepee was for them. And so, we had two teepees with a little bit of distance apart, but there was a fire in the center, and I had the entrances facing the fire. Mm. And again, you know, in my youth and my need to know, if ever I went into the moon lot, so I was engaging with the fire and talking with the firekeepers and things, if I went into the moon lodge, I would actually feel a little bit of nausea. And I asked them that they'd be interested in just kind of experimenting this with me. And I had one of the mooning women come into the teepee with the altar for the hamblecha. And she also said, I don't feel comfortable in here. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling the energy rising up, but I'm you know, actually wanting to be deeper and nestled and nested in the earth. And, yeah. you know, two teepees, but again, the energies were very different. So, for me, that was a corroboration and a confirmation of these ancient teachings that have been passed down and that they're not arbitrary, that there really is a wisdom to these protocols and there is a reason and a purpose for them. And I think that's exactly it. I think the synopsis of that whole conversation for me is that it's not arbitrary, it's not random, and it's certainly not intended to do harm, which I think the absence of teaching and storytelling and tradition passing the gap that was there has led people to fill it in with their own beliefs. And I think it's all of us. It's a whole society of folks who don't even know it's available to honor that time. I see it happening more and more now, which is beautiful. When I was a kid, it was still kind of this gross, disgusting thing that girls just did and men had no business even trying to understand. And obviously I have a way different perspective of it now. I think it'll be really healing for people to hear what we're talking about here and the possibility I see. I mean, my daughter's too. I just, for the first time in that conversation, I was like, oh, wow, she's going to have her first moon at some point. And what an honor that will be. What a day of celebration that will be for my family when she gets to have that and we get to support her in that. And, and all of the beautiful women that she has in her life, her aunties that she has around her that will celebrate her and teach her that this is a beautiful thing. This is a ceremony that you get to carry as a woman. And just that microcosm of the greater conversation we're having is really encouraging for me. And I think more of us get to embrace, at least know that this is available to be honoring of that time. It's not something that we can understand as men or as humans who don't bleed, who don't have that ceremony, but there's still Mm -hmm. a role for us to be in support of, in honoring of at a very minimum. 
Absolutely. So, for example, during the moon time ceremony of the first bleeding, it's not as if the men are excluded, but rather that thinking about, for example, the Apache rite of passage, you know, where the young woman will run and will marathon each of the directions. And then she's also covered in cattail or corn pollen, for example. So is the embodiment of the corn mother and corn maiden. You know, the men are a part of that ceremony, but they take a more peripheral role. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you have the young girl and she's surrounded by mothers and aunties and grandmothers who celebrate and support her moving into this shift, this rite of passage, literally, in this new transition. And the men are there with drums in a more peripheral kind of role as they, shall we say, enclosing the circle and shielding so that the preciousness of that life can be honored and revered. And I'm reminded of a woman that came to study with me many, many years ago. At the time of her apprenticeship, she was 40 years old. She had been amenarchic, meaning she didn't have a moon for 17 years. And she truly desired to have children with her husband. Her physician said, well, might as well just consider adopting because it's really never going to happen. So for 13 moons, she faithfully attended all of the full moon and new moon ceremonies, the equinoxes and the solstice, beginning to align herself with the cycles of nature. And in 13 moons, she started bleeding. And after that, she gave birth to a daughter. And for me, that just shows the beauty of this way, how human beings, particularly women, can truly connect with the earth and with the cycles of nature. You know, and I really see that we as human beings have divorced ourselves from the natural world not only women, but also men. And that it really is learning how to resurrect our intimate relationship with the natural world and with our mother, the earth, to kind of pull this string and and tie it all together. You know, that (laughs) we really need to have absolute reverence and respect for our mother, the earth and her cycles and for us to connect with our own natures and to respect each other the genders of all people's identities, to understand that we all belong here and that we can understand our medicine based upon our gender identity and really lift each other up. I was always taught that, you know, if you really serve and sacrifice and take care of your partner and the women around you, then it will be reciprocal. They will do the same. And I do believe it's our charge as men to serve as the shields and to protect and place our life on the line to ensure that future generations will be able to flourish here. So we take care of the women and the children and the elders and the earth. There's a story, oftentimes, many, again, Western people will take umbrage to the fact that there is a man walking in front of a grandmother or of a woman. And so there's this perception of superiority, but actually it's because they're willing to take the shot right? Mm, They're the shield that walks in front, right? Knowing that it's the grandmothers who are calling the shots. That's beautiful. That's actually a great place for us to complete because I think that's such a beautiful punctuation mark on this conversation about right relationship between man and woman and ultimately our relationship with the earth. I just like to leave people with something to ponder and think about. So that's a good one to leave off on. Chief, 
I love you and I appreciate you and I really value your wisdom and appreciate you taking time. I know you love having these conversations. It's a treat for both of us, I think. (laughs) And we get to share it with other people. But I want to thank you again. Would you, just for folks who don't know you or haven't gotten to connect with you yet, just give us the information where you'd like to send people if they'd like to have a conversation with you. Sure. So they can reach me. The website is www.ancestralvoice.org. This Institute for Indigenous Lifeways has now been in existence for over 25 years. And they can also reach me by email at philip with two L's at ancestralvoice.org. And I prefer actually talking story over the phone. And I'm also modern enough to use text. So they can text me at 415-310-0981. You know, I really, really love and appreciate you and your family here. And please give blessings to Carrie and to the kids. And I really appreciate what you're doing and the rich conversations that you're bringing to the exploration of our masculinity and how we dance, you know, in this world in terms of our identity and our sovereignty. So thank you for that. Thank you very much, Chief. Likewise, very much appreciate you and looking forward to completing the first loop with you (laughs) on our next one. One cycle complete, many more to go. Thanks again for tuning in here today. Make sure you go to risingman.org to check out everything we got going on in the Rising Man community, including our three-day wilderness immersion called Elements coming up April 16th to 18th. Please check out the show notes for links and resources on the website, risingman.org, and subscribe and follow us wherever you're listening to the podcast. Go ahead and check us out on Instagram as well, at Rising Man Movement, if you don't follow us already, and on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement. Shout out to the Power Squad, Mark, Kyle, Ryan, Rowan, Sean, and Julian. I love you guys. Thank you for sticking in it with me and carrying the banner each and every week. Much love. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.